This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. I'm very excited to introduce uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, along with his new book, Shortest Way Home, affectionately known as Mayor Pete. He is the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, having served since 2012. Born and raised there, he went on to graduate from Harvard and studied at Pembroke College, Oxford, as a Rhodes Scholar. From 2009 to 2017, he served in the U.S. Navy Reserves, for which he took a leave of absence in order to serve a seventh-month deployment in Afghanistan in 2014. And one of the most moving parts of his story and book is when he describes his decision and experience of coming out as gay in 2015, after which he was re-elected to a second term as mayor with 80% of the vote. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And if all of that wasn't enough, on January 23rd, 2019, he announced the formation of a presidential exploratory committee. His book chronicles his journey, but also serves as an inspirational story and blueprint for how one person, along with the uh, the community, turned around the fortunes of a uh, city Newsweek once described as dying. It is already garnering praise with the New York Times writing, the notion of Buttigieg might be the nation's first openly gay president doesn't feel quite as far-fetched. He'll be in conversation this afternoon with Jonathan Allen, a political reporter for NBC News and co-author of best-selling books Shattered and HRC. So without further ado, please help me in welcoming Mayor Pete Buttigieg and Jonathan Allen to Politics and Prose. You're bouncing on your chair. I don't want to bounce on mine. I'm big enough that it might not come back. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of people here. Yeah, this is pretty good. Uh, you're, you're, you're from South Bend. I'm from here. I've been to a lot of events here. I've never seen anything like this. I was here to, to hear Ted Kennedy read uh, The Midnight Ride of Paul Revere one night. Wow. And it wasn't anything like this. <laughs> Um, now, he wasn't exploring a run for president at that time, so I'm kind of confused about this whole exploratory stuff, but, uh, we, can but get into that. we can get into that a little we bit. We should probably also acknowledge the people who uh, maybe are in the little overflow area, but we know you're here and we appreciate you too, even though we can't see you. So. <laughs> <laughs> we hear you loud and clear. And if, if I could just one moment of personal privilege, my parents are here, so please don't let them know that when you're applauding, you're not applauding for me. Um, so uh, I took the time to read Shortest Way Home. Um, and uh, I'm not going to be one of these interviewers that says I'm partway through the book and, uh, or my producer read this and. Um, but uh, one thing I would note just for anybody who's thinking about buying it, it looks like a lot of you already have. Um, Either you or your editor is a really good writer. This is a this Thank is a you. good this is a good read. Um, and it so it took me hours, so I appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> I mean, I read a lot of political books, and this actually this actually went pretty pretty well and smoothly. And and there's some good stuff. And I wanted to ask you, like, sort of first question, um, because we're at politics and prose. And by the way, I wrote my questions in the book, <laughs> maybe reducing the future sale value. <laughs> Um, But I want to start kind of at the beginning. Um, You write early in the book that you discovered that profanity may be abusive, but also poetic. And I wanted you to just kind of take us into the moment uh, there in your childhood and let us know a little bit about uh, sort of where you come from, who your parents were, and how you got this understanding that profanity may be abusive, but also poetic, in part because... Uh, the title of this book, Shortest Way Home, is taken from a James Joyce quotation, and as we all know, he was considered a little bit profane in his time. Uh, well, sure. So the, the context for that was uh, my discovery of football. So uh, when I was old enough, my father, I think when I turned six, my father considered me old enough to come with him uh, to the, the house that Rockney built, the Notre Dame Stadium. 
Um, you know, South Bend has probably a more complex relationship with Notre Dame than, than some may realize who haven't been there. We really grew up as, as an industry town, and, and the university, strictly speaking, is outside of the city limits. But, of course, it's, it's such an important part of the community and, and the consciousness of the community. Um, and uh, I remember being in the stands, and I write about this a little bit, uh, and just hearing, basically learning about uh, uh, heckling and jeering and cheering and uh, slowly piecing together as a kid exactly the now unrepeatable things that some of the fans in the stand, stands around us were saying, but also coming to respect a, a sort of rhetorical art that was going on there. Um, and I think some part of that stayed with me over the years. Um, and a little bit about your parents. Are there, uh, they were English professors, is that right? Yeah, yeah. They taught, my father immigrated to the country from, uh, from Malta, then became a U.S. citizen. My mother uh, went to high school in, in El Paso. She was a military brat, and, and they met, and soon after that, Got, got jobs at Notre Dame. So that, that's why I, I, we grew up in South Bend. I grew up in South Bend. The, uh, uh, they were there to teach, and, and uh, really my, my life as a little kid revolved around uh, our neighborhood and the neighborhood park and then campus. I would you know, toddle along with them to campus and uh, wander around and get into trouble, and uh, um, it, it was a great way to grow up. And as someone who's a writer who'd like my kid to you know, maybe get good at math and analysis and stuff, I wonder how you go from having parents who are English professors to being a McKinsey consultant and Rhodes Scholar and somebody who uh, does a lot of data analysis <laughs> yeah. and intelligence work for the Navy Reserve. So how does that, how does that happen? Yeah. So I think all, th all through college, I was more of a humanities guy. I did history and literature. I kind of took, took after my, my parents in that way. I loved language and turns of phrase and what they could mean. Um, and, and of course cared about politics and world affairs. But um, I also came to realize there's a kind of poetry in math too. And so one of the things I write about, I, by the time I was at McKinsey, I was doing math for a living. And uh, they, they lured me to McKinsey largely by telling me about all the public sector work they did and stuff they do with foundations. And, and they do some really interesting work in that regard. But actually the most intellectually formative study I did was, uh, was on grocery pricing, uh, which was not one of the things that I, I was really excited to get into uh, when I accepted a job there. But the reason was we, we had this problem that we had to solve for the client. The only way to solve it was to build this gigantic database of all the sales. They had like 1,000 grocery stores. Um, all the sales and all the prices and how many of what item they sold in what week and uh, build it into this database. And it broke the computer I was working on. They had to mail me a, uh, another computer. Um, and what I learned was that you can weave uh, whole realities out of data. Uh, and I began to understand how important data was. I'm not a data scientist. I'm not a data expert. But a few years later when I was uh, taking office and I realized how important it was for the city to gather data just to understand whether we were doing a good job. Because... Uh, you know, the old way of solving problems was, you know, if potholes or we're missing trash pickup in your neighborhood, then, you know, it comes to the attention of the mayor once it gets bad enough that somebody tells their council member. Um, one of the things we learned once we actually set up a 311 system so we could actually get, get real information about, you know, are we missing more trash picks up in, pickups in this neighborhood than that one, is actually the areas where we had the worst service were often the areas where we had the least complaints. Because what had happened there was the residents had given up. Uh, they felt ill-served. They didn't think we cared. It, it, it didn't seem to them possible that the reason we weren't serving them was we didn't know there was a problem. Uh, and so there was also a kind of justice that became available through better use of data, but we had to gather it in, to begin with. Well, so you go from, uh, from being a Rhodes Scholar at one point, and I'm skipping a little bit around, but I want to talk about some of the bigger themes in the book, yeah. um, in, in part because I think they inform how you think about public policy. You go from being a Rhodes Scholar to fixing roads, um, <laughs> that pun was made more than once in the street department. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and you take sort of a data-driven approach to management in a lot of ways, at least as a, as, and through the book we see this in crime and we see it in terms of uh, fixing problems with, uh, with water tables and things like that. Yeah. Um, and, but what also comes out of this is uh, sort of a tension between the sort of pure data analysis and the needs of your community. And yeah. I want, one of the things you write in the book is that, uh, one of the things you write about in the book is the tension between efficiency and responsiveness. Yes. And the tension between efficiency and morality. Yeah. And the tension between efficiency and what you call mercy. And I'd like if you could expound a little bit for the audience, because I think these are things um, that play out in our public policy debates a lot, whether they are debates between Republicans and Democrats or among Republicans themselves or among Democrats themselves. 
If you could sort of give yeah. some, some explanation of what you mean by some of those tensions. Yeah, so I think government in general, and certainly city government, in, in some ways it's uh, it's applied philosophy. And, um, you know, you're doing, I mean, you're very much pressed into being a utilitarian. If you think about the big debate in ethics, right, between Kantians who care about, I'm being very reductive here, but they care about what motivates you, what's in your heart, right? What, what makes you do what you do? And utilitarians who say, you know, something's right or wrong based on how it impacts the greatest number of people. Well, if you're sitting in an office and your job is to make sure that you, let's say, plow the snow for the greatest number of people or, or you fill in the greatest number of potholes in the greatest number of neighborhoods, I mean, you're, you're thinking usually in a very utilitarian way. And so you organize city services around that. How do we make sure that we serve the most people for the least number of dollars with the least number of city employees, the, the greatest percentage of the time? And yet there are these moments when efficiency is not actually what you're after. Um, you realize responsiveness, for example, is not the same thing as efficiency, right? The most efficient way to, let's say, fill potholes is to break the city up into quadrants and go do them one at a time in a very well thought through uh, uh, pattern. The most responsive way is the moment somebody calls us, we get out there and do it. But that's actually not efficient. So what do you care about more, being responsive or being efficient? Um, and sometimes the most efficient thing isn't really the right thing to do either. That's Those are the issues that I think really... Uh, affect us uh, because you have this drive to make everything more, uh, I mean, basically efficiency means conforming to a rule. And again, I'm going to think about this in some very Parks and Rec kind of terms, right? So um, <clears throat> uh, like I tell a story about a city council member who got a call from somebody who had a, uh, a dead animal uh, on her property uh, and wanted to get it removed. And, uh, you know, if it's in the street, we'll come take care of it. But if it's on a property, it's your problem. Uh, and this woman was elderly and she couldn't really deal with it herself. And so he said, are you, are you sure it's, uh, are you sure it's on the property and not in the street? <laughs> and she was this very honest lady. And she said, yes, yes, it's on my property. He's like, okay, but are you sure? <laughs> and she was very honest. And so in the middle of the night, he found the critter, he dragged it into the street and then he called it in. <laughs> um, and so the point like mercy consists of exceptions to rules. I think about the definition of mercy. It's, it's giving somebody a break. It's, it's making an allowance. And there's this tension um, that I found myself living over time uh, between uh, taking care of people, which often involves making exceptions, and being efficient. And by the way, fair. Because if you do that for one person, it's not exactly fair. And those are the moral, some of the greatest hazard, I think, in public office comes from confusing technical problems with moral ones. A technical problem, by definition, has a right answer. You may or may not have found it, but it has a right answer. Um, for those of you who study economics, you think about Pareto efficiency. Right? By definition, the more efficient something is, the better, because you're making somebody better off without making somebody worse off. As a politician, as an office holder, if you can find a situation like that, by definition, you should do it. But uh, so often, where we really earn our paychecks in public service is that there are times when you cannot make one person better off without making another person worse off. Those are moral questions. And you can't, you can't think your way out of them with a technical fix. You just have to decide which good and which evil to prioritize over the other. You write about this in terms of local policies. Are there federal policies you look at and say, we are really getting this wrong? we're really getting the balance of efficiency versus morality wrong? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, quite I mean, a few. Can, can, you, can you name some of them? <laughs> I asked a yes well. or no, but I really wanted a longer answer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think every federal policy question is shot through with this. I mean, the way we come at healthcare, which is like basically with the dollars we have, we're trying to get as much as we can out to the greatest number. Some of it is technical, right? So... Uh, not to get really geeky with you, but but if you know if CMS could figure out a way to make sure fewer hands touch a pre-authorization uh, on its way through the medical system, we'd be spending less dollars on admin and more on patient care. And that's just a technical thing that we got to get right. But the question of how much we ought to ask some Americans to pay in order to help insure other Americans, uh, the question of mandates and subsidies, uh, the question of taxes, right? Taxes is a, a situation where you have to make somebody worse off in order to make somebody else better off. Um, or make, uh, and this is another thing we don't debate enough, I think, the relationship between present and future selves. You know, if you, you take my money in taxes and then you pay it back to me in the form of uh, national defense and a good street, um, that's a, basically what you're doing is you're, 
you're negotiating a, an exchange between me and my future self. Um, and one of the premises of me getting involved in the 2020 conversation is, um, what responsibilities do we have to our future selves in addition to the responsibilities that, that people have between one generation and another? And of course, the classic uh, issue where this is coming to a head is climate. Not to mention national debt and the various Absolutely. things that we pay for. Um, and more immediately, uh, whether military construction funds go to the things that they were already appropriated for or building a wall along the border. I would argue that's a case of making somebody worse off, specifically military families, uh, in order to make no one better off. But that's just me. Um, one of the other things that you write about that I thought was very interesting is uh, the idea that policy and symbolism cannot be decoupled. Yeah. Um, and to just give people context on this uh, a little bit, you're talking about uh, the idea that both of these things are important, yeah. that getting good policy and doing things that are symbolic are important. And if you could talk a little bit about um, about maybe the tension between those things and why it's important and how you think about those two things as a leader. Yeah. When is symbolism important? What are the things that you think are symbolic and important versus uh, policy outcomes? Yeah, I, I describe a scene in the, in the book, I describe a moment where a friend of mine who was also a, an elected official said, I wish, I wish we still had royalty in America. I was like, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> And what he meant was, I wish that we had somebody else who could do ribbon cuttings and parades and all that stuff so I could do policy. And I realized that expressed how I felt when I arrived in office too. I cared about policy. I cared about management. I cared about administration. I want to make things more efficient. If something had 17 steps, I want to get it down to 12. Um, and so when I was in these situations, which a mayor is in all the time, where your job is to just stand there, um, the photo ops, the ribbon cuttings, the parades, and it was the, uh, I read about how it was the, actually the image of politics I least liked. I always picture Mayor Quimby from The Simpsons, right? The kind of <laughs> cigar chomping, back slapping guy with a shit eating grin who's just, you know, that's, you know, th that, that was not why I got into politics and policy. But the conversion I went through in office was that um, I began to understand that, that that actually in some ways is policy. So where you show up and where you don't, uh, what you say or what you don't say, you, you, just the mere act of being there, even if you're just standing there. And, and the, the episode that really brought it home for me was uh, one, one of the most difficult uh, experiences I had, which is we, we had a double homicide. Uh, and I went down uh, a couple days later just to see what was going on at the corner where it happened. I didn't announce I was coming. I just turned up. And uh, people started showing up at the same time. And inadvertently, I had shown up at the moment that neighbors were basically having kind of an impromptu wake. Um, and uh, the mother of, the, of one of the victims showed up. And I dreaded the idea of talking to her because I had no technical expertise in what to do. I don't know about grief counseling. I don't know about psychology. Uh, I, I did not have any knowledge of how to make this person better off. To the point I almost avoided talking to her, but I knew of course it was my job to talk to her. So I went up and talked to her and it was all small talk. Um, and I don't remember what we said, but it came back to me many times later that uh, it meant a lot to her that we had talked. And what I realized then was that it didn't matter, frankly, that it was me and not somebody else there. It didn't matter what I say. It had nothing to do with my skill or my actions. It was that the mayor was there. The mayor was there meant the city was there. And the city was there meant that the city cared about her loss. And so as a walking symbol, as an avatar for whatever combination of people elected you to a certain office, that matters. Uh, and from the presidency on down, I think the, the, the symbolic power that's conferred on you um, is something you can deploy in order to get results just as much as the sort of policy machinery that you're put in charge of. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, your experience deploying uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, but the, the first one is something you write about. Uh, you had signed up for the Navy Reserves. Um, and, but before that, you, you write about uh, being in the Ivy League uh, at Harvard during 9-11. And you write about how in past wars, um, the ranks of the officers in the military were filled with people from the Ivy Leagues. And it, in these wars, that's not been true. And I want to I get a sense of what your thought process was in eventually signing up, but not having done it sort of immediately. You didn't react to 9-11 by signing up, but many years later, yeah. 
ended up doing that? What was your, what was your evolution on that? Yeah. So there had always been a vague sense of military service in my family. My, I grew up with a picture on the wall of, uh, of my great uncle who was an army officer, all three brothers in, in that generation, my grandfather's generation had served. Uh, so I always had this vague sense that maybe I should do it, but it never really seemed like something I, I, I would do. Um, the thing that put me over the top was a visit to Iowa. Actually, I was knocking on doors for Obama. It was uh, 08. It was in very low-income rural areas. And I couldn't believe how many of the young men I met, many of whom looked like kids to me, were uh, getting ready to go to basic training and, and on their way to Iraq or Afghanistan. And <clears throat> it set off this, this reflection that I had about uh, this question you raised about class. So... Um, Somewhere on the shelves of the store, I assume, uh, is a, a book called AWOL, which is about the radical transformation from a period in the 40s and 50s when if you were in Ivy League uh, school, actually the majority of your class, at least for the men, would go into the service. And I was trying to think of how many people in my Harvard class had gone into uniform. And it was, I could count it on one hand, at least the ones I knew about. And the problem is this is actually really important for American social cohesion. So the military was where... Uh, uh, John F. Kennedy or a young George H.W. Bush, you know, scions of these powerful families, would wind up on more or less equal terms socially with, you know, farmers' kids from Ohio. And uh, I think it helped them become more attuned to the rest of America. I was not the scion of a powerful and wealthy family. Um, but I will say when I did wind up serving, it helped me understand uh, the experience of people just dramatically different than me. And... Um, I hope that we get back to, I think we're starting to actually, uh, a norm where people from every background and every educational uh, uh, background um, are feeling that call. Military service isn't for everybody, but I think it has that effect. And, uh, and it was one of the reasons I'm very glad I did it. You write that on your first night in Afghanistan, you're sitting around a campfire uh, with some of your, uh, some of your peers uh, smoking a Gurkha cigar um, and one of, uh, one of your, uh, compatriots says this war is over. Yeah. That's 2014. Yeah. Um, and basically he's making the point to you that there's nothing more to gain, that the United States is not going to push Pakistan on supporting, uh, basically supporting America's enemies in Afghanistan. Right. Um, and later in the book you write about John Kerry saying, how do you ask a man to be the last to die for a mistake, and your thought being, how do you ask someone to be the last to die for anything? Um, and yet, when President Trump said he wanted to uh, withdraw troops from Afghanistan and the Senate recently voted on it, uh, and several of the senators running for president voted essentially with him um, against, uh, basically in favor, well, let me put it this way, against an amendment that was against a hasty withdrawal. Right. They've basically voted with him. Your position was a little different on that. Can you explain what the best thing to do is in Afghanistan, given that in 2014 you were hearing yeah. this war is over um, and that you thought there was going to be a drawdown under President Obama that we haven't right. seen? Yeah. I mean, the, the bottom line is that there has to be an end to endless war. You know, you, you could be old enough to enlist today and not have even been alive on 9-11. And so we've got to ask ourselves if, if we haven't met our objectives now, um, what are we doing? Now, the Taliban are now in talks with the U.S. That's encouraging if they're actually serious about putting down their weapons and coming to the table. Uh, the strange thing is that the, the Afghan government is off to the side in this conversation. So I think most of us agree that this has to come to an end. I think the challenge is uh, how do we do it in a way that doesn't wind up with us going right back there because of an attack uh, that is launched from, from a failed state once again in a few years. But isn't that the reason we've been there since 2014? I think since that point at which your compatriot said the war is over? I think that also has to do with a, a slipping or shifting definition of success. I think you know the people, especially the people who were in charge of U.S. policy in the early stages of the war, um, as they were in Iraq, had this vision that we could turn – these countries into functioning Western style friendly democracies. And we just can't, that can't be the objective. The only objective is, uh, will more American lives be at risk if we, uh, if, if we don't complete this mission or not. Um, but completing the mission doesn't mean having uh, a robust, one of the best, you know, governments in the world. It means making sure we're not going to get killed because of the conditions there. Well, what does that look like to you? Uh, to me, it looks like a negotiated peace that the legitimate elected Afghan government 
uh, is uh, in peace with the Taliban. And it's going to, by the way, include some provisions we don't like. And if that can't happen, are we there indefinitely? We can't solve all of these problems, right? But but we also have to face reality that if uh, if it becomes a failed state and a, and a terrorist attack on the U.S. homeland comes from Afghanistan again, we could be in Groundhog Day. So we've got to decide what we're willing to do uh, in order to prevent that. But we have the bottom line is that we have become way too lax in our threshold for what's worth committing U.S. troops to. You can see it in John Bolton wagging around a notepad suggesting we're going to you know, send troops to Venezuela um, or to Colombia to deal with Venezuela. And uh, you know, I'll, it's also struck me as amazing in the short, you know, when I, having vaguely known I might run for office someday, when I, when a picture was taken of me at a protest against the Iraq war in front of somebody holding a big peace sign with a microphone, um, I was aware that that photo, or at least I believed at the time that that photo might be a career killer for me in the future. It was amazing to think from 2002 to 2016, that was enough time to watch us evolve from, uh, when Democrats in 2002 would lie and say they were for the Iraq war to 2016 when Republicans are lying and saying they were against it. It's amazing how quickly that changed. Uh, and I think it shows you that really since the beginning of this century, we haven't had a cohesive vision of what U.S. security policy is even supposed to be. Are you saying the likelihood to lie is based entirely on the length of time in which you've been in office? <laughs> <laughs> you said it, not me. <laughs> um, I want to run through uh, some some other federal sort of federal policy issues. I know you're only in an exploratory phase of your campaign, whatever the hell that means. Um, <laughs> but you may soon be forced to deal with these things. Um, and if you get sixty five thousand individual donors from fifty states or whatever the the uh, the measurement is, um, you'll you'll be on a debate stage talking about these things soon enough. Um, a lot of Democrats are talking about Medicare for all. Mm -hmm. Um, what's your thought on Medicare for all and, uh, and what Kamala Harris recently said about uh, getting rid of the private insurance industry as well? So first of all, I think Medicare for all is the right way to go. Uh, and, and also if you would say what you mean by that. Yes. <laughs> so look, the, the citizens of most developed countries enjoy universal health care, whether it is a fully nationalized or socialized system like you have in the UK or whether it's a single payer program like what is being uh, proposed by most proponents of Medicare for all. Uh, so the idea that we can't have it uh, just doesn't make any sense to me. Now, how the, uh, the question of how you get there is a tough and fair question. And I believe the answer has to do with what I would call a Medicare for all who want it. So basically what it means is the, the pathway to Medicare for all is that you take a, a version of Medicare, you make it available as a public option on the exchanges, uh, and people buy in. Now, if people like me are right, that this is ultimately going to be a more efficient and preferred option, then you're going to see this lead uh, to a single-payer environment. I will put an asterisk on this, which is that not only in single-payer countries, but even in socialized medicine countries like the UK, where I studied for a couple of years, there's still a role for the private sector. There were private clinics, private insurance. If you have co-pays and deductibles, there may be a private insurance market to deal with that. That's fine. Um, but the, the, the most important thing is that uh, Americans should not have inferior access than uh, citizens of other countries do. Uh, and I think we, by the way, this is also something I think needs to be said. Uh, single payer represents a compromise position between the right wing position, which is a fully corporate uh, free for all. I mean, the extreme right wing position would be no rules at all, just all corporate. Then the far left position would be socialized medicine like they have in the UK which isn't bad. I don't think it's for us, but it, 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 for the most part, works for the Brits. Um, so the compromise would be uh, private provider, public payer. And yet this compromise position, this centrist position, has been characterized as though it's from the furthest reaches of the crazy zones of the far, far, far left. And I think that demonstrates how successful the right has been in redefining the entire playing field of the American political debate over the last 40 years. I think Steve Ratner was making that point on Morning Joe yes, with you the other he day. he was, and I was making this point. <laughs> Let me just add one other thing, um, which is... Uh, A little plug for NBC. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, great watch. Uh, it was a great view. Um, because uh, we'll probably get into some other policy litmus tests, and we can do them. I'll, I'll answer the questions. But I want to say that the Democrats, I think, to our detriment, have gone pouncing right into the policy positions. 
uh, escalating competition of issuing PowerPoints and binders and 14-point plans. Um, and while we have been doing that for as long as I've been alive, uh, conservatives did a very good job of fighting and winning a battle of big, big ideas and then clearing the way for any number of policies that followed from those ideas. So I would argue that the original sin of the situation the Democrats are in right now is that somewhere along the line, the, 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 the conservatives had their, their ideas, their values, which were mostly about a certain, in my view, narrow version of freedom. Uh, those are the ideal level. And then they came to the policy level of what ideas come, what, what policies come from those values. And then they descend to a sort of political level of, 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 of what to do and who's running for office about that. And we used to do the same. And then one fine day, we looked at the other side and said, let's just look at their policies and think up some policies that are halfway between the policies we wished we had and the policies they have. And um, more independents will vote for us that way. And it worked. In the 90s, that worked. Over time, it came to be the case that the entire policy debate on our side was just about how we were reacting to their policies. It wasn't about our values. It was about their policies and how, the, the, how fiercely we would oppose them or how uh, conciliatory we would be in imitating them. And it means we took our measure from what they were doing. And I think the time has come to negotiate the battle of ideas first and then talk about policies. So I'll answer your policy questions because I have to, because I want to be in this conversation. But I just want to mention that if we want to win the next era and not just the next election, we had better be competing in the battle of ideas and not just the battle of policies. What are your three words? <laughs> I'll, I'll let you do your three buckets. You've All right, got the you got it. Yeah, words. this is my Democratic bumper sticker. It's freedom, democracy, security. People say we can't put our values on a bumper sticker. I say we can. I say it's freedom. Democracy, security. It's almost shorter than Buttigieg. <laughs> well, it's easier to say. And we can unpack. Look, each of those is a word of something nobody could be against. But I believe if you unpack them in a serious-minded way, it points you to values and, and, and political commitments that are more progressive than not. And not to do like a whole lecture on this, but I'll just take the example we just talked through, right? Medicare for all. So I believe Medicare for all enhances freedom. This is hard for a conservative to understand because to them, freedom just means freedom from regulation. To me, freedom means freedom to start a, a, a business, uh, knowing that leaving your, your job doesn't mean losing your health care. Um, or the freedom, uh, you know, we just went through a very painful episode in my family where uh, we lost my father to an illness and had to make some, some wrenching decisions. Um, but all of those decisions could be made strictly around the, the, the questions of what was right for him and right for our family medically um, and not about finances, thanks to Medicare. Uh, so to me, that enhanced our freedom. And I think we need to have a richer idea of what freedom means uh, and win that, again, that battle of ideas so that we can then set up a number of policies that enhance people's freedom, um, even while recognizing some of them mean less of a role for government and some of them mean more. Um, and uh, the loss of your father is, uh, is very, very recent. I don't know if folks know that. Um, obviously, very sorry to hear about that. And uh, it's probably very nice that he, he got to know you were running for president. Yeah, he got to see that much. Um, so uh, um, I'm going to ask a couple more questions. I'm going to be a pain in the ass and ask you a little bit about policy because see? that's my job. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and then we'll open up for okay. questions because I think other folks have questions that they'd like to ask you about. Um, one thing I'm curious about, in 2016 in the Democratic primary, Bernie Sanders ran on the idea uh, economically uh, that fairness mattered most and uh, didn't really talk about, uh, talk about that in terms of growth. And Hillary Clinton's idea was that growth is predicated on fairness, that you can't have growth without fairness. And I want to know what your thought – yeah, no, I have the same reaction to that thought. Um, <laughs> I want to know what your thoughts are on economic growth and fairness and how those two things do or don't interact and how they should or shouldn't interact. Well, the simplest answer is that it must be possible to have growth without fairness because in my lifetime, we've had the rising tide rise more than a rising tide's ever risen and half the boats didn't go anywhere. So I think what that tells us, unless you believe that those were some undeserving boats, uh, unless you believe the 400 people who have more between them than I think like 150 million Americans really are better <laughs> than those 150 Ameri million Americans. Some of them are running for president. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Moving right along. Um, uh, look, and this, 
you know, a lot of promises were made to my part of the country in particular, the industrial Midwest. It basically, let us do these things, let us cut these regulations and change these things, and uh, the, the pie will get so much bigger that, that we can get you, if your slice gets smaller, we can get you a second slice, so don't even worry about it. And part of the story came true. The pie got bigger, but not so much the part about getting more pie for, for most of us. Um, so, you know, that question of fairness, I think, is alive and well. And that question of fairness de- develops into a question of stability and security because no society has ever endured this level of inequality for long without some people resorting to social or political violence. And uh, we really need to ask ourselves about what this means for our sustainability as a country and our way of life, not just whether we think it's right or wrong. Um, just two more, I said two more before, but two more questions. Um, uh, you, write, um, you write in the book, uh, as Michael mentioned when he was introducing, you write about your decision to uh, come out about your orientation. Um, one of the things that I've found interesting uh, about this campaign so far is that it's not, it seems to me to not be something that people are talking a lot about. I mean, I think they are in circle, some circles, but it's not uh, something, uh, whereas five or 10 years ago, it might've been the headline. Um, can you talk a little bit about your decision to do that and what you've learned? I mean, in Washington, D.C., that might not be seen as such a big deal, but you're the mayor of South Bend. So talk a little bit about, and by the way, you mentioned in the book or talk in the book about how your deployment affected that. So if you could talk a little bit about that um, and then sort of what that decision meant to you and what you've learned um, in the time since then. Uh, and I ask that in part because I think that one of the things that I've heard in the last couple of weeks is that there are um, people who, whether or not this is your intention, um, see you as, as something of a model or a source of strength. So, uh, first of all, it's very humbling to hear that. And, and it's one of the things I heard after I came out, too. The reason I came out was because I wanted to have a personal life. Um, it, it was really that simple. Um, and I guess I'd been wanting to do it for a while after I came out to myself, which also took a while. Um, I'm not sure I would have ever got around to it if it weren't the deployment. The deployment put me over the top um, largely just because I think I, I started realizing that you only get one life. And not just in the sense that, that you got to make the most of it, but also in the sense that you only get to be one person. Um, and when you're not out, you learn to be more than one person. Uh, and when you're in politics, you are pressed to become more than one person. Um, but when you die, you're only one person. And I remember thinking, I could die. And I'm in my 30s. I'm the mayor of a city. I've traveled the world. I have no clue what it is like to be in love. And I just thought that was a confusing and humiliating place to be. And I had to end it. Um, inconveniently, I was a re-election year when I got back. <laughs> and so the mechanics of it became a real problem. Um, like, what do you do? And, and I hope we're solving for a day where, and maybe it's like this in D.C., I don't know. Uh, it's like this in some cities where the, the way I would have solved this problem is I would have had, you know, another chicken dinner one night. And I'd show up and my date's a dude and everybody's like, oh, huh, okay. And then that's that. <laughs> that was not how it worked in Mike Pence's Indiana in 2015. <laughs> so I had to... So I had to tell everybody, preferably just once. And, and that's when I realized that as I often do when I'm trying to gather my thoughts, whether it's explaining my entire life or, or, or just uh, an email, I, I wrote it down. And, and then I put it in the newspaper. Um, we weren't sure what would happen, but what happened, you know, politically, what happened, to make a long story short, was I got reelected. Um, and personally, what happened was I met uh, Chaston. Probably the best chapter in the book is kind of a love letter to this guy in the green sweater here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> who sometimes talks about our first date and an answer that I gave to the question about the future that was honest at the time, which was, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm up for re-election. If it goes well and I have a second term, I think I might get a look at statewide office. Um, and uh, so he got slightly more than he bargained for in terms of what we're up to right now. Um, but uh, that's the best thing that ever happened to me. And uh, my last question is, if um, if there are folks who look at your candidacy and they listen to you here, they listen to you elsewhere, and they go, I kind of like that, that Pete Buttigieg guy, uh, but he's not a senator, uh, he's not a governor, 
He doesn't have $150 million in the bank. Um, why am I going to support somebody who doesn't have all that behind him already? What, like, what's your plan for winning the presidency? Uh, look, at no time in the last 100 years would a 37-year-old Midwestern mayor be even taken slightly seriously in this conversation. We're living in a moment that is calling for newcomers and it's calling for underdogs. And I think it's a, a season for a new generation to produce people. Uh, and I think it's a season when it's not the worst thing to come from a, a governing background. By the way, a very serious one where you, you're on the hook for, for very serious things in government, responsible for the well-being of 100,000 people managing a, a budget that's in the several hundred million dollars uh, and a workforce. Um, I want to say this in a way that does not come off as disrespectful to the United States Congress. But are, are we certain that spending many years in the U.S. Congress is a better background than that? Um, I'm going to note that as mild applause from an audience that surely includes some congressional staffers. <laughs> <laughs> I just think we'd be well served to put it this way. If, if, if the U.S. Congress looked more like the best run cities and towns instead of the other way around, I think we'd have a better country. And uh, we're going to take some questions as the first person uh, comes up to the mic. I'm going to get you to agree, hopefully, to give me an Oval Office interview uh, on Inauguration Day if you win the presidency. Done. Uh, please go ahead. Hi, Mayor Pete. Can you yeah, speak into the microphone, please? Okay. Um, I was struck listening to you talk about uh, single payer and how it's been defined by the right. I think something that's often missing with progressive politicians is an acknowledgement that the people you govern and the people you're around a lot of ways in Indiana, in red states across the country, are conditioned by right-wing media, for example, to believe all sorts of outlandish things. So I'm curious, particularly for me, coming from a red state and a conservative family, I know that firsthand. I'm curious what to what degree you consider the people you govern, who you're around, victims of that system, and how we talk to people who are told every day all sorts of counterfactual things. Yeah, I'm going to stand up for a minute if that's okay. Um, so uh, it's a real concern, right? Especially as our media become more fragmented because you just get a different reality. And I know there are a lot. Let me tell you one uh, episode that I relay in the book. Uh, a guy who was very well liked in the community, uh, owned a small business uh, and had a bunch of employees, he, uh, kids, and he got deported. And all the people who lived around him rallied uh, to try to fight it. And they loved him. Uh, he was a really good guy, but he was undocumented. And they were furious that he got deported. At one point, it emerged that even his wife had voted for Trump. And it's easy to be judgmental about that and say, what did you expect? But you got to understand that if you're in that particular part of our community, it's very conservative. And the only media you got were conservative media. And the only people you talked to were people for whom being Republican was basically the same thing as being respectable. Then to them, it was just a matter of course. Um, breaking through that is tough. Uh, in my experience, the best way to get conservative and Republican support is, is twofold. First of all, a focus on results and just things we do agree on or things we can get done. Um, so uh, keeping the conversation as concrete as possible. By the way, the more concrete you make a discussion, the more people tend to agree with us. So most Republicans, if you say, are you for gun control? They'll say no. If you say, are you for universal background checks and you describe it in detail, they say, yeah, of course, who wouldn't be? Um, and so we've got to do that. The other thing we've got to do is um, do it respectfully. So I got to tell you, if, if uh, someone like me goes up to uh, a working class guy in Marshall County, Indiana, and says, you're voting against your economic interests, he's going to say, so are you. Piss off, right? Like, <laughs> we, we need to make sure that we're engaging people in a way. I mean, there's a reconciliate when and if this period ends, there's a reconciliation stage that's going to have to happen that involves on one hand not budging one inch from our values. And on the other hand, finding some way to relate to people without notifying them that we think they're complicit in a crime. And it's going to be a real challenge for this country. But I think the way we get there is by talking about the things we believe and talking about our values even when they're different. Because I think people who talk in terms of values, and this gets back to why I think we lead with values more than policies, will respect each other even when those values differ. And so I hope we can move the conversation that way, too. Thanks. Thanks.
Hi. Um, I just wanted to say that you've inspired a lot of people, um, especially for as an openly gay man from a red state running for the highest office you can in the United States. Um, so I just wanted to ask who or what inspired you to run and like, why are you running? Right. So, um, exploring, exploring, yeah. <laughs> we'll go with that. Are you my lawyer? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, You'd be in a lot of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, it's funny because my lawyer's here and he's <laughs> really important to him that I not say things I'm not supposed to say. Um, where were we? Inspiration. So, look, I, I grew up both, both growing up in a Catholic community and uh, uh, having spent a lot of time at the Institute of Politics at Harvard, I really soaked up a lot of the Kennedy legends. That was part of just this idea that a whole generation then was motivated to run by the idea that public service was noble. And, uh, you know, by the time I came of age, there was this sense that, like, it was dirty. And there's this very self-fulfilling quality, if you believe that, right? Because then you leave it to the people who are very cynical, who regard it simply as a, as a matter of power as opposed to a matter of values. So I thought that was really important. A lot of my inspiration, though, comes from literature. Uh, you know, authors like, like Joy, uh, James Joyce, uh, Nagib Mahfouz, um, because they write books that are very political, but they're not about politicians. And they're not even on their face, they're about politics. What they're about is people's everyday lives. And I think the reason we even have a politics, as, as human beings, the reason we developed politics, is in order to make everyday lives better or worse. Well, better. But, but knowing that they can be made better or worse by politics. Um, and I think we need more voices with that kind of grounding to be in the national conversation. So that it's not just about who's up and who's down and the sorts of things that command attention on cable most of the time. All right, thank you. Thanks. Hi, this down. Um, I totally agree with what you're saying about the importance of values and how policy flows from values. But the three values that you mentioned could easily be Republican values. Yes. And you're just defining them differently, perhaps. Yes. And so I'm wondering, are there different values? That why are you shying away from a value of fairness? Mm. Why isn't that in there? Is that purposeful in some way? No, it's mostly that I just ran out of, you, 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 I guess you try to have three categories. I actually think <laughs> you, fair. You, you can have more yeah. than three categories. I think we need to talk a lot about, I mean, a similar, a slightly different vocabulary for similar commitments that we talked about in the DNC race was, was I talk about freedom, fairness, families in the future. And I think like the, the same commitments can be fit into a freedom, democracy, security framework. But how, what, look, what we're all going to choose our language and our, and our kind of expressions of it. Um, to me, you, you, you don't have authentic freedom if some of us have more freedom than others. And I understand what you're yeah. saying, but I don't know if everybody would understand it as simply as if you said fairness was one of the values that you yeah. cherished. You'll probably hear the word fairness out of my mouth okay. quite often, but thank you. I, 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 I understand and I agree. Hi, Mayor Pete. Hi. Um, I know we're still exploring, but I've been telling everyone I know you're going to be my president one day. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Our president one day. Um, so my question for you is, what is your strategy for overcoming the divisive politics that's been proliferated over the past two years? And what are you going to do to bring together people of all backgrounds and make them find common ground and be able to empathize with each other? So I've noticed that uh, we are better toward people we know or specific people than toward people in the abstract or categories or groups of people. Not always. We can be horrible in person, too. But we're <laughs> but on balance, I believe we're better. Mm -hmm. And so the biggest thing I think we can do toward reconciliation and toward decency is to really focus on, it's kind of what I'm getting at with this concreteness thing, mm -hmm. um, to focus on how one person is impacted by these choices. This, I think, is what has largely turned the tide for the LGBT community. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was people thought one thing when they were thinking of this group, wholly unaware that people they knew or people perhaps that they loved were part of that group. And when more, and pe more people began coming out, they began less and less to visualize the folks you see in the B-roll of the Pride Parade on CNN. And more and more, like, my nephew, who's really hurting right now. And you could be super conservative, but you also want what's best to you, for your nephew. Mm -hmm. And whatever the other is, we've got to de-other them through, if necessary, just through stories, storytelling. Again, it's, it's why my approach to literature is actually um, the same as my approach to politics. And if I were a better writer, I'd be a novelist. Um, 
because we have to, through stories, I think relate to one another as human beings. Um, now that's, that's a story about how we conduct our, our political rhetoric and our conversations. Uh, a more tactical thing is we simply have to win and pass and implement better policies and show people that those policies serve them better than what they're getting from DC right now. Thank you so much. Thanks. I support nonfiction. Second. I support nonfiction writing. <laughs> Hi, Murphy. Um, first of all, coming from Michiana, I never thought I'd read about Martins in a book, and that was very surreal, as was reading any description of South Bend. Yeah. Um, but so at the beginning and in your book, you talk about data and using data um, to improve efficiency in the city. Uh, I'm a graduate student at George Washington, and uh, last semester of my classes, we read a book called Automating Inequality mm. about um, how technology is really only as equal and like field leveling as the people who create it. Yes. And I want to know what your thoughts were on that. Yes, it's so important. And that issue is actually only going to accelerate in importance as artificial intelligence uh, kicks in. Uh, so uh, uh, there are all kinds of examples of this. Uh, facial recognition software uh, was very slow to work for non-white people because most people who designed it were white people. Um, the, uh, uh, if you take the, the phrase, she is a doctor, he is a nurse, and maybe it's not true anymore, but it used to be the case that if you enter it into Google Translate into Turkish, which has no gender pronouns, and then you copy it into a new window and, and translate it back to English, it comes back to you as he is a doctor, she is a nurse. Okay. It's not because some sexist programmer at Google was like, ah, oh, we got to make sure that only men can be doctors. It's that... <laughs> That's an artificial intelligence algorithm, and all it's doing is soaking up what's around it. And it turns out that people are pretty sexist about this, and it somehow inhaled that and then, and then breathed it back out into the world. So we have to be very intentional as policymakers um, about whether these technologies serve to deepen or bridge those inequalities and biases. Uh, because as you say, it's only as good or as bad as the people who set it up, but also the rules we create for it. Um, not to get too far out on you, but in Estonia, I'm on a big Estonia kick whenever a question about data comes up. Um, they're actually contemplating what legal rights and responsibilities apply to algorithms, uh, partly for this reason, because an algorithm has moral weight. Just think about the algorithm that tells a car whether it should swerve to the right. It's like this classic philosophy problem. Should the car swerve to the right and hit, uh, you know, uh, uh, 10 people this way or five people that way? And, um, there's moral weight to, to even the most... Uh, uh, the most routine program that, that government uh, uses. And we don't have all the solutions, but we need to develop a framework that takes it seriously, which is one reason why it might be nice if some of the people in elected office had some concept of the technologies that we're using. And, <laughs> and, 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 and that can happen at any age. Just think about John Dingle's mastery of Twitter. Um, but but uh, also there are a lot of legislators right now who don't understand what they're regulating. Yes? Hey, Murphy. Um, I'm actually from South Bend, born and raised nice. there. That was great. So I look at the city that I knew in the, the first 20 years of my life is very different from the city of the past eight years. And I can only think it's from your leadership. There's a lot Thank of you. movement, a lot of enthusiasm. And so I was wondering if how reciprocal that relationship is. How has South Bend changed you from the person you were in 2011? Hmm. What a great question. Um, well, the biggest thing about being mayor is you, you extend yourself to other people. You, you take on other people's experiences kind of as your own. And I mean, the funny thing for me is I'd gone around the world, you know, I'd studied, I'd traveled, and I saw more adventure and in some ways more exoticism, sometimes a mile from my house when I entered the political process than, than I'd seen halfway around the world. Because the, the beauty of our democratic structure is any person you see is basically your boss, right? They all have an equal uh, claim on you. And so you learn to take all, if you're good at this, you, you have to learn to, to take them all seriously. And um, it was especially helpful when people asked me questions that made me defensive. Um, uh, this is particularly true of my relationship with the black community in South Bend. Uh, where they really questioned whether I could understand uh, some of the experiences they were going through. And the honest answer early on was I didn't. Uh, and through what I can only describe as quantity time, came to understand better uh, what that was like and hopefully make better choices around that. Um, I, I guess it just made me feel like I have a better understanding of, of, of what it's like to be alive, which is such an amazing gift. The, the only other place I know you can get it from, and I'm, I'm starting to repeat myself here, but is literature. Uh, 
Um, and, uh, and, and that's something that, that I wouldn't trade for anything. Thank you. Thanks. Hi, May Pete. Um, first thing I wanted to say, thank you so much, uh, for throwing your name out there for exploring a run, um, being a married openly gay man, as well as being a millennial, you are inspiring so many people to get off their, uh, couches and get involved. <laughs> um, but what I wanted to ask was, uh, in your interview with Colbert, you mentioned how uh, we were all part of the mass shooting uh, generation. Um, we're at a time right now where that is such a pressing concern. There are people being killed every day. Um, so I wanted to ask, uh, how would you even approach uh, solving uh the amount of gun violence that exists in our society, and how would you approach that? Inner, uh, how do you approach talking to that with people in red states? Yeah, great question. Um, the worst part of my job is getting the phone call about violence. So not only mass shootings, but just routine shootings, right? Many of which involve young people. Some of which happen in our city, um, <clears throat> and it's, it's the worst part of the job. Uh, in the book, I describe an uh, anti-violence strategy we've hit on that we think is, is helping. It's called a group violence intervention. There's a whole book about it called Don't Shoot by David Kennedy, if you're really interested in those tactics. Uh, they show a lot of promise. But every time we've been dealing with that, I feel like we've been doing it with one hand behind my back because the state of Indiana won't let us do anything about common sense gun policy. Um, and I've taken some stands that got me uh, uh, attracted some attention, not all of it positive, around me in Indiana on this. Um, but I have found that there, there is a common sense conversation you can have. And the way, the way I have it with people in red state or in any state is I talk about three things. Number one, um, I, I'm just sick of getting the phone call about teenager getting shot in my city. Uh, and every time I go to one of those vigils, I want it to be the last one. And I don't think I've been to the last one. Secondly, I'm there when we swear in new police officers. And when I'm standing there with that police officer and he or she has uh, their right hand up, with their spouse at their side, sometimes the child in the arms of that spouse. I think about how I never want to get a call about that police officer. And I think about all the reasons we don't want that police officer to be outgunned on the streets of our city. And the third thing I talk about is the fact that it was my responsibility to carry two weapons, a pistol and a rifle, uh, an M4, which is not that different from an AR-15, if we're being honest, um, on foreign soil on the orders of a U.S. president. And uh, I'm aware of the capabilities of some weaponry that um, simply does not belong on the streets of American neighborhoods in peacetime. There's just no reason. And I don't know if I win everybody over when I talk about this, but I think most of them understand that I'm coming at this, coming by these views honestly. And even in our very red state, it seems to be a position most people can accept on common sense terms. Thank you. Thanks. Hello, Mayor Pete. I'm not from South Bend, Indiana, but I will say Kofinti, Kimitaibae. Do you speak <laughs> Maltese? Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I'm getting tested. That's a Kofik is Arabic, right? What's that? Kofik Arabic, Kofinti Maltese. It's Maltia? Okay, now it's over me. That's Shay? My parents are from Salima. Really? What's the family name? Skembri. Okay, great. I have a cousin named Shay. There's not a lot of surnames in Malta. There's no. like 20. Right, so. That's why. Yeah. And that's my great. mother's best friend was Mary Budicic. There you go. <laughs> so who knows? Um, so it's like a, Smith over there. You go into a crowded bar. You're like, hey, Budicic. Everybody turn around. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, no, no. And so as a daughter of both both my parents are Maltese immigrants, I'm, it sickens me the, the way our country is dealing with the immigration um, and the Democrats, particularly, I feel are really not um, getting the point across that we are all children of immigrants. How do we address this? How would you address this? Yeah. Uh, you know, again, I try to talk about it in practical terms. So the city of South Bend, which saw massive population decline after the auto factories left in the 60s, is growing again. And I, I, it's my job, even though the growth is modest, the fact that it's a positive number is a big deal for us. And, and I go cheerlead for it everywhere I can. If you dig into the data, uh, without immigration, it would be net zero. We would not be growing at all. By the way, that's how our city got built in the first place. You look out the window of my office, you see two 
church steeples right next to each other. And at first you just think, oh, churches. Then you might think, how come two identically proportioned Catholic churches one block apart from each other were built in what seems to be the same era? And the reason is, downtown was very dense and diverse 100 years ago. You had to have one for the Irish and one for the Polish. <laughs> so this is, in a way, nothing new. Um, what's new is the uh, pace at which people are included or excluded from being, to put it bluntly, white. Italians weren't white mm -hmm. before. Irish weren't white. I'm, I'm putting this a little crassly, but um, this otherness that yeah. goes on around yeah. immigrants. Yeah. I wouldn't be here if it weren't for immigration. Yeah. Most yeah. of us wouldn't, right. unless you're from the First Nations. Right. Um, but I think we also have to talk about this as not just how we got here, but how we're growing. Because one of the best ways to tell whether a country has a bright future or not, if you really want to talk about greatness, make America great. Um, <laughs> a lot of that uh, lies in growth that can only happen if we welcome immigration. And of course, people should go through a process. Right. Um, we could make that process a little more straightforward. And if we were serious about fixing it, we would have done something like the comprehensive immigration reform that passed the Senate only to get killed in the House about a decade ago, which is still a pretty good framework as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, <clears throat> we, got, we got time for one more question if there's anybody. So... Can you repeat the yeah, if you didn't hear it, the question is about this racial backlash, the extent to which racial backlash explains recent election results and how we're supposed to move from, forward from that. Uh, and I think that's absolutely part. Look, you got to ask yourself, if, if this was an economic anxiety election, how come it happened under conditions of full employment in 2016, right? Obviously, there's more to the story here. And a lot of this story has to do with race. Uh, now, I also believe a lot of the story has to do with identity. And I don't just mean identity in the way people use the, the phrase identity politics, um, but also in terms of people not understanding where they fit in, uh, especially if their dominant group starts to not be the dominant group. Um, I think there's, there are healthy and unhealthy answers to uh, the loss of identity. And by the way, some of this also is economic in the sense that um, things like automation are changing the way we fit in the workplace. And those of us who are going to, in our generation, change uh, careers more often than our parents change jobs, uh, are going to have to find ways not only to make an income, which is not a, a simple thing to replace, but also the sense of community and identity and purpose that you used to get from a lifelong relationship with a single employer, whether you were working at a CPA firm or on the floor of a factory. The reason I bring this up is I think part of what's happened is that void of, of identity, even if we did get you a new job that's different from your old job in industry, but it doesn't answer how you believe you fit in the world. If we leave that void open, things will rush in to take its place. One thing that rushes in to take its place is, is uh, opioids. Another thing that will rush in to take its place is white identity politics. And I believe we're living through peak white identity politics right now. So what are some other things we can use instead? First, community. And again, this is a mayor-minded approach to it, but I've observed the power of a group of people who have nothing in common other than the mere fact that South Bend belongs to them, uh, finding uh, ways to come together or to have a sense of shared purpose or to live side by side. Um, but also, uh, you know, a, a more broad sense of what uh, perhaps how faith can play a role in bringing us together at risk of sounding kind of conservative. Um, that's, that's something that can be... Uh, a healthy response if it's inclusive. Um, and so many other ways we can figure out how to, um, frankly, come out ahead from depending on it. Is it necessarily a good thing that for the last few hundred years, the way you explained who you are, the way you answer the question, what do you do at a dinner party is through your career? I mean, if you have a great fulfilling career, then I guess that's great. But um, there's more to our, where we fit in society than that. And if we don't furnish inclusive forms for us to explain where we fit, then I think people will rely on exclusive forms. And I think that's part of what led to uh, the, the racial backlash that we're experiencing right now. Final question at the final, microphone. Final, all right. yes. And it was actually, um, it's going to be a very similar question okay. that was asked. Um, you mentioned earlier about the forgotten communities yeah. in South Bend where um, some communities just like gave up. That's why you weren't hearing from them. Yeah. I guess my question is, you know, how... Would you also take that experience of serving to uh, communities that gave up yeah. and how you can apply it to 
uh, the overall yeah, great question. So if there is a silver lining on recent election results, I think it's the communities that were left out are getting more attention. So to me, it feels like most of my life we were being ignored in places like the industrial Midwest. Um, and suddenly everybody is studying us with exotic fascination. They, the, we, we, the, 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 from the West Coast to the East Coast, political observers, journalists, strategists, they descend on, on these small communities wanting to understand. Take me to your dive bar. And, uh, um, and so it's actually a fertile moment, I think, to ask people to take a closer look. But again, we have to make sure that the answers we come up with are answers. Fundamentally, I believe politics is about how people feel about themselves. And so we need to make sure that for people who have felt left behind in these communities, they're coming to a better place, including being more inclusive than they have ever been uh, around race and immigration uh, and uh, living with others. Um, that they are rewarded with being made to feel good about themselves for having come that right way. Because if we try to drag them there, uh, we may actually scare them right back into the arms of the, the, some of the worst elements in our politics. Um, and so it has to be a process of outreach um, that authentically meets people where they are and does so in a way that is both gentle and uh, unyielding when it comes to values that are sometimes not celebrated in these communities but ought to be. Thank you. Thank you. This is my, my part as a f uh, fellow author. Uh, Shortest Way Home uh, by Mayor Pete Buttigieg. <clears throat> Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.